what a privilege and a blessing that we have to come before God's word and to study um, and, and know that he has instruction for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And this area that we'll be studying today is no different. God has given us um, plenty of instructions and I think it is helpful uh, for us as a church to have a good theology of um, sexual intimacy because the world does have a lot of teachings and a lot of, uh, of thing, information that will be spreading out to our children, to our family members, to ourselves, to try to corrupt our understanding of this beautiful thing that God made. So let's, um, let's start with a word of prayer and... We'll jump right in. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for your great mercies. They are renewed every morning. Lord, we're thankful for the many blessings that you have given to your people to enjoy. Lord, and as we approach the, one of these blessings, may we reflect on your faithfulness and your goodness uh, to give um, such a beautiful gift. I pray, Father, that as we study these things, that we would look with uh, sobriety, we would look with um, listening ears to be instructed and to be encouraged to honor that which you honor. Father, thank you for um, saving us, giving us a new life and a new purpose so that we might be uh, different than the world on how they perceive these things. We are thankful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, I start here in the introduction saying there's too many Christian teaching on sexuality that is a purely crude talk. And, and it should be discouraged as it encourages licentiousness. It just um, it, it fosters the thinking of um, engaging engage in the imagination of things that shouldn't really be proper. So let's start with Ephesians 5 just to set up the proper tone um, it is one thing for us to seek some uh, guidance or 101 counsel, and it's another thing when this kind of instruction is coming from the pulpit, so we, we ought to be careful. Ephesians chapter 5, and looking at verse 3 and 4. And it says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not be even named among you as it is proper to saints, among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse, joke, coarse joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So um, this description here of immoralities or um, impurity in Greek, is, it's really referring to obscene conduct, thought of words concerning sexual issues. So realizing the context of, of where we're coming from. Then the other word there, um, which says the coarse joking, uh, the, actually the silly talk is funny or loose speech concerning sexual issues. That is really the context there. And then the third word is the coarse joking. It's a rude joking concerning sexual issues. 
All of these things, really, um, Paul is discouraging uh, the Ephesians to do. So as we talk about sex, we shouldn't be um, making fun of it, making, uh, uh, you know, obviously we're not uptight. <laughs> we can um, have freedom in Christ um, to say certain things, but we ought to be careful that we're not dishonoring that which God honors. So the other extreme, I think there is, you know, I, I said there's this one side where when people talk about sexual issues, they're way too open, and then the other extreme is that the taboo in some Christian circles have encouraged shame and inadequate view of intimacy, which both breeds misguided guilt and shame. And there is, as I said, there's a lot of misinformation found on the internet that is unhelpful to a young generation, and that's basically how they're getting their information today. You just Google it. The church should provide then a safe and sanctified way of instructing about the beauty of God's design for sex and the importance of the pursuit of holiness in this area. I think if there is one area that parents can really help their children is by providing helpful information and not just letting them wander. So, all right. Basically, we have three points today. God's design for sexual intimacy, God's guidelines. Um, really, we're going to take a look on some passages in the Old Testament and New Testament. Then we'll see some issues related to um, some theological issues related to our view of marriage and sex. And lastly, we'll close with um, some issues that uh, might come up in counseling. All right. So first of all, God's design for sexual intimacy. The design is from creation. Uh, from the beginning of creation, we see that God has um, given us everything that he wanted us to understand about it. And this was even before the fall. So Genesis chapter 1 is starting on verse 27. What do we read there? So God is creating mankind in his image. Verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see that there is a distinction of sexes there. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, if you ever studied biology, uh, you will find that there are some creatures that are able to reproduce um, in, in their own, they don't have a male and a female, they just reproduce either by cutting, like some worms, they double their body and they cut a piece of it and a new worm grows up. But man is not like that. We were made in God's image. And God had a specific purpose of having a male and a female, the means by which they would reproduce. Two males wouldn't reproduce, two females wouldn't reproduce, but a male and a female. So really, God's design for sex is that it is heterosexual because he made them male and female. Um, if you jump to chapter 2 from verse 22, um, he says here, uh, talk, the narrative of God uh, fashioning Eve 
to be a suitable helper for him. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed with the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And then the man sat and sung this song. So it is, you see that God didn't make two women. He, he didn't put uh, um, Adam in a garden um, with two or three women or with another man. He didn't fashion another man out of the, the rib of Adam. Um, so there is an exclusivity. This um, sex designed by God is monogamous. The Lord has fashioned into a woman the rib which had taken from the man. God designed sex to be part of a covenant marriage as um, he gives also the instruction, really, what happened in uh, that union with Adam and Eve uh, would be the, the parameters for marriage in the future uh, for every family. So looking at verse um, 24 here, it says, For this man shall, live, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this whole covenant uh, language for, for marriage, really, you'll see Malachi, the, the wife of your covenant. Um, so th- that language we'll see a little bit later because it's more theological. Um, but it, it's really about being part of this covenant of marriage. Second, is designed to be enjoyable and not painful. At the end of the sixth day, what did God say? It was a very good thing that he had made. So this distinction between male and female and that there are to subdue the earth, all of those things are a blessing. They're to be enjoyable and not painful. God blessed sex to be fruitful and to produce children. We'll have a little discussion on this. Is this a command? Is this a, a, a blessing? How, you know, have different, people have different views on this. Um, and then God designed sex to be more than a biological act. Uh, sexual relations help us to know the other person. Um, and this we really infer from even the way that the Hebrew language describes the sexual relationship between Adam and Eve. So chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child to help with the help of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to that had relations. Um, if you look at the, uh, the side note in your Bible, you probably will see that the man knew his wife. So the verb used for sexual relations in Hebrew is the verb to know. So it's this intimate knowledge of, of a person that you're living with, the person that you're married to. Sexual relations help us to know the other person. Sexual relations help us is a form of intimate sharing that it is not shared with nobody else other than your spouse. It symbolizes appreciation, acceptance, approval, and regard. They promote togetherness, unity, and mutual trust and companionship. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I'm going to mention is that normally when people are having issues with, with sex is um, really relational. Um, you, you know, you can't have that intimacy, that closeness, that openness, that sharing if the relationship is damaged. So 
what are then the guidelines from the Old Testament? So I got a few passages here from the Old Testament, primarily on what were the forbidden things that God didn't allow. And the first one is premarital sex. Premarital sex is against God's design, and it was punishable. I mean, I, I think if you read a passage like this nowadays, Deuteronomy chapter 22, someone can stand up and read that one for us. 20, 22 verses 20 and 21. The world would be appalled. We're going to have a bunch of, of dead people <laughs> all over. Deuteronomy 22. In chapter 20, oh, verse 20, 21. Thank you. So he calls it evil. Um, young people seeking um, to enjoy the pleasure of sexual relationship apart from a covenant marriage is dishonoring to the Lord. I mean, the Old Testament, it was punishable with death. Thank God we're not under the law anymore. So that application of, of the capital penalty for uh, sexual morality is not is no longer abiding us, but yet God remains, and, and the principles of purity remains. Um, particularly, I, I you know will draw your attention to Hebrews that talks about let the marriage bed be undefiled. So sexual intercourse before marriage, some relevant issues is that this is a, a type of worship was a type of worship in the Old Testament. So. Either, um, and even today, it is a matter of worship. Either you worship God or you worship self or the other person. Um, you're really taking something that is not yours to take with, to, take, to, to begin with. Deuteronomy 5.18, I'm not going to read all of these, but it's talking about adultery. You shall not commit adultery um, the, from the Ten Commandments. Is reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament, and he goes beyond that, you know, committing adultery is not just a matter of you being physically with someone, it is even a matter of you looking with the intent, with the desire to commit adultery. That is already adultery in before God. Married persons having sexual relations outside of their own marriage are violating their marital vows, deceit, taking and giving something that does not belong that only belongs to their spouses alone. Then Leviticus 20, 18, 22, and all these other passages, another form of sexual deviancy was homosexuality and sodomy. We're going to have a whole um, <coughs> section on uh, speaking of homosexuality, trans, transgender, and how we ought to really uh, approach this world. Um, so same-sex relations are sinful and called unnatural in the New Testament is a clear sign of God's judgment of a decaying society. And then uh, Leviticus 18 uh, talks about incestual, incestual relationships. Um, sexual relations between persons closely related are forbidden. And the same practice is also condemned in the New Testament. First Corinthians, we hear of that uh, man that we're having relationship with his own um, stepmother. And it, it's called immorality of such a kind as that does not even exist among the Gentiles. Now, I do want to take a pause here on, on the Proverbs because it, it offers, offers us such a, a 
good picture of what the sexual relationship is supposed to be like. Proverbs, and let's go to chapter 5. These, I mean, Proverbs is filled with warnings against engaging in sinful sexual relationship, particularly for young men, warning them, be, look, look, at, look at this story, this illustration that I'm giving you, this young man following after this adulterous woman, and he's entangled, he's ensnared like, some, like a lamb going to a slaughter. So there's a lot of the terminology but here in chapter 5, there is this uh, use of a, a kind of a weird, strange description. It's comparing, Solomon is comparing sex and the sexual relationship as waters. Um, and such as waters are powerful. You know, you look at the, the, the waves and how they are powerful and destructive. Think about a waterfall and how when it, you know, falls and then the rocks deteriorate. Sex is like that. It is a powerful thing. It's a, it's a great thing as long as it is contained. It is helpful. You can't, you, we live on water. We drink water. We, we bathe in water. We cook with water. We do a lot of things with water. So that's why he's saying using this analogy is, is a powerful thing, is a helpful thing, but there is boundaries. And let's start on verse, um, I just want to get the introduction here. <clears throat> verse 7, it says, Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far away from her. And he's talking about primarily of um, the adulterous woman and, and the strangers. Then verse 15, instead of you pursuing those waters, the strange waters, to drink water, verse 15, from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. What is he talking about here? It will soon become uh, clear as he talks about the wife. He says, should, should your springs be dispersed abroad and your streams of water in the streets, it is not to be shared with anyone else. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let the fountain, your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a, lo a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be ex exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. So verse 15 and 18 just say that this is a natural occurrence. We will want those waters. We will thirst for them. It's a natural occurrence. Sexual desire should be satisfied only with one spouse and not with someone else. You are to reserve yourself for your spouse, as verses 16 and 17 imply. Are to be continuously blessed on verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Sexual satisfaction in marriage is a great thing. Then from verses 20 and 23, we see that these extramarital sexual relations are not only sinful, but also leads to destruction. All right, some more guidelines, and I'm going to give some, some time here for comments um, or questions. Songs of Solomon, we're not going to read it. Um, you can read it in the 
intimacy of your home, um, but it is an exaltation of courtship and marital love between a husband and his wife. Um, I, I read a book, was, um, I'm not a big fan of Matt Chandler, uh, but he, there's his book on, on Song of Solomon, it was so helpful. He, he's describing how you know, a husband is, is the whole um, courtship thing and the whole playing with each other and just discovering all of the beauty of, of the marital sex. So, there were some of the guidelines from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. That one is, it says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers uh, God will judge. Now, the... The second word there for marriage bad is specifically talking about the intercourse. It's what um, in Greek, I just blanked out the word, um, is really the word coitus in, in Greek, that where we, we, we have that um, intercourse word in English. Um, so it should be undefiled. Marriage is an honorable state. First um, Timothy 4, I think one of the really downfalls of, of the church was when um, you know, Paul gave that instruction of people pursuing singleness for the sake of ministry, and then later on with the corruption of, of the church, the Catholic church, he started advocating for men to, to, to be single, to be in ministry. I don't think there is nothing wrong with someone being single and being in ministry. But when, you, when they kept pushing that and, and, and not seeing the dangers that are involved with that really caused uh, a, an awful thing. And Paul already warned in 1 Timothy 4 that there will be those that will try to forbid marriage. Uh, chapter, 1 Timothy 4, chapter 4 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later time some will fall away from faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars and seared in their own conscience as a branding of iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared. So both the foods and marriage are to be gratefully shared and by those who believe and know the truth. For everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be but it is to be received with gratitude for it is sanctified by the means of the word of god and prayer so the whole even the whole view that the catholic church uh, associated with sex as something bad as something pure it has nothing to do with the biblical view this is something that we should receive with gratitude it is not ultimate but it's something that we ought to enjoy God forbids all, so in, based on Hebrews 13, forbids all sexual relations outside of marriage. The general word that is used there for um, sexual immorality is porneia, is a general term that includes fornication, includes pornography, includes adultery, homosexuality, and all these things. And it should be within the context of marriage only. Then it is blessed by God, it is honored among all. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 5, um, you probably will remember that, that the will of God for us is our sanctification. 
So a sexually active marital relationship is a means of fulfilling God's will. You're, you're fulfilling the will of God when you are pure, when you keep yourself for your marriage. Holiness doesn't exclude sexual activity, but holiness controls its manifestation. I think that is such a helpful statement because um, the, the world sees, oh, you're, you're so holy, you're, cons- you're restricted, you are being uh, framed, you are caged in this thing. It's like, no, this is a protection from us that God has made for us that we get to enjoy within the boundaries of marriage and there is no fear um, in that. Sexual encounters that is in any and any exploit in another person that are wrong. No person should selfishly use a partner as an object to gratify his or her lust for pleasure in excitement. Um, because Paul talks about this defiling, this um, defiling of the brothers and the sisters. You shouldn't do that, such as acts constitute transgressions against and the defrauding of another person that they are contrary to the New Testament to love your neighbor as yourself. So in sexual relations, one mate must be treated with honor as a holy thing, and that would certainly involve a respect for the personhood of the other person and a concern for his and her welfare and feelings. They are not to be casual. They are not merely physical acts. They involve the total self, the whole person, God-honoring sexual relationships should take place within the context of a careful, caring, respectful relationship which involves a permanent and total commitment. In other words, marriage. Being a Christian should add a whole new dimension to one's purity. It's not just a matter of, oh, we didn't have an intercourse. We we didn't go all the way. No, for us believers, we think um, even in ways that... um, if, if you are uh, seducing or misleading someone to think that you're giving themselves to them and, and you're not, you're also defrauding them. So it goes beyond even than just um, having physical sexual relationship. I, I find it helpful then, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 all the way through 7, it's a, a well-known text for, for us. And uh, I'm going to stop there and make some comments. I just wanted to give this foundation before we move on. So, you know that the church in Corinth was well (laughs) involved with uh, sexual sin. I remember being, um, when I visited uh, Corinth, when I traveled to Greece, they had this huge uh, platform, and that's where they had the the prostitutes, and it was right on the top of, of a hill. So, you know, the people that were down in the city, they would look up and they would see that temple the, of Aphrodite uh, where they had the, you know, sexual worship, basically. Um, all these prostitutes, a thousand prostitutes in that place. It's just rampant. So you imagine uh, now these people got saved. They used to be sexually moral, drunks, remember like what we read last week. But God saved them and they're no longer those uh, walking that way. But they still struggled. And Paul is giving clear directives here for, for the church and for people. So uh, from verses 12 to 20, I'm not going to read the whole text, um, sexual encounters can never be regarded as casual. Um, they com- 
you know, they were saying they had a false assumption that physical intimacy is casual. You can have it whenever you want. And Paul is saying, no, that's not, not everything. Everything is permissible to us, but not everything honors God. Not everything um, is free. It's a good use of our freedom. If you're using your freedom for immorality, that's not honoring to the Lord. Verse 13 from verse uh, from chapter 6, food is for the stomach. That was their excuse. Food is for the stomach, is, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So um, the excuse of the Corinthians really, no, this is just a biological need. I'm just satisfying my biological needs. And he's go, he goes on to say, you know, um, even the body is going to be done away with. Um, but do you not know that your, body are, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? So it really portrays the, the fact that sex is not just a joining of bodies. It is a, a connection in even a spiritual level that you're uniting uh, yourself with whoever it is. It is not self-centered. Um, chapter 7 onward really will address then what about the, the, the confines of marriage? How is that supposed to be seen then? Under normal circumstances, celibacy for married people isn't an option. Physical intimacy is not only spiritual, but permissible and yet even obligatory. Chapter 7, verse 2. Paul is saying, um, now concerning the things that I, you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul, you know, you're going to see that he advocates for singleness as a means of serving, being more capable of serving ministry. But he says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own, own husband. So if, if the person knows that they are tempted in this area, they shouldn't decide, oh, I want to be single now when they already know that they're, they're weak in this area. Now, obviously, marriage is not an, an avenue for dealing with sexual sin. We'll see that uh, next week. Then he moves on to say, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Is stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. By this way, I say, uh, I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men, and then he's going to advocate for singleness. Uh, he says marriage involves a commitment to fulfill the sexual desires of the partner. That is the major difference with the world. The world sees sex as a means to satisfy oneself. I mean, that's why you have masturbation, you have uh, pornography. It's a means to really, it's, it's a self-focused sex. It's a, a one-person sex. Uh, I remember one of my professors even used to say that this kind is even uh, um, homosexual sex because it is you being stimulated by a person um, of the same sex, yourself. 
in God's design, he wanted to be pleasing to the other person. And I think that is the beauty of it. Because if one spouse is trying to please the other and the other is trying to please them, both of them get to enjoy the beauty of it. We don't have authority over our own bodies, but our uh, spouse does. Selfishness in sex relationships is forbidden. It is the most, um, you know, I, at some point I had to write a paper on this topic. And I, I was just reading an unbeliever talking about this. And he made that observation, you know, when both are intent to please each other, this is the most fulfilling. I'm like, well, should have just read the Bible. That's what it says, right? Um, but, you know, they, they make it, these observations and they don't realize that, you know, God's intended was the exclusivity of marriage as the boundaries for and, and the means to enjoy it at its fullest capacity. Under normal circumstances, physical intimacy is to be regular and continuous. Conjugal relations may only be suspensed for only the following reasons, and Paul gave it. Mutual consent. You know, you, you both agree to it. Um, you know, we need to take a break from this. So it could be for a physical, um, might be limited at a time for a specific reason. Someone had a surgery. They can't um, be joined together or for the purpose of prayer. You know, we're going through a really difficult trial. Let's spend this time studying scripture and, and praying and encouraging one another. But Paul is saying this is limited. It's not for a, a, a long period of time because it might tempt you. And they're not merely for the purpose of procreation. Um, I don't know if you're going to have a whole lot of time to discuss this part on the... Um, the birth control views, but I just wanted to read this quote here from um, Team Chalice, um, and he's he's talking about that sexual desire is meant um, is not only meant for motivating procreation. He's quoting C.S. Lewis. He says he affirms that the biological purpose of sex is pro- is procreation. Um, is not only procreation, but draws a helpful parallel to the appetite for food. The biological purpose of eating is to repair the body. And though some people are given to overindulgence, we find that the appetite goes only little way beyond the biological purpose. A man may eat twice as much food as his body needs for its bio- biological purpose, but few will eat even that much. When it comes to sex, though, the appetite far exceeds its biological purpose. If the sexual appetite matched the biological function, either a person would only desire sex a few times in the, um, in the lifetime, or he would have thousands of children. Every time the person had a sexual desire, they would fulfill that in having children. Um, does, does that not teach us that God desires that we have sex for reasons beyond procreation? The only other alternative is that this appetite is a product of sin and ought to be suppressed. But no, this cannot be. The Bible is clear that legitimate sexual desire, desire within marriage, and a desire for one's spouse is legitimate legitimate before God. God gives a man sexual desire, sexual appetite, because he wants him or her to have sex with his wife or her husband. Can it be just that simple? What's more, the appetite surpasses any biological purpose because he wants the couple to have sex and have it a lot. 
not having sex in a, in a marriage relationship is an exception, not the norm. After all, the only admonition in Scripture regarding the frequency of marriage sex appears in 1 Corinthians 7, which says that there may be a brief pause for specific limited purposes. The implication is that then sex is going to be a normal part of life. In fact, the Bible goes on to as far to say that a wife belongs to her husband, that he has authority over her body, and the husband's body belongs to his wife, and she has authority over his body. Now, I want to make uh, just a quick comment on this here, because I have, you know, counseled people that um, they, they were in abusive relationships, that they, the spouses... Um, really being selfish. Oh you, oh, you see, the Bible is telling me here, telling you here that you should give yourself for me. Well, it, it, that's not how we, the obedience should supposed to be on them, not and on you. You can't demand someone, you, you're really twisting scripture for your own advantage. The point of Paul saying here is you give. It is not about you take. When you're demanding someone to give you something, you're not giving, you're taking. That is selfish. You're using scripture to your own advantage and you're not fulfilling your spouse. Instead, you should pursue them and, 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 and show how much you appreciate them and ask them, what is that that will please you the most? Um, it is other-centered, it is not self-centered. Self-centered sex is no different than the masturbation or pornography because it doesn't focus on the other person. All right, any questions, comments so far? I know that I spoke a lot, but I wanna give you some break for, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, you think about um, even the scandal that was for, for Joseph uh, to not, you know, Mary could have been stoned to death, um, but the Lord, you know, appeared to him and intervened in the whole situation but it, it just shows how, how serious it was. And people really, and it, here's the interesting thing. You, you talk to unbelievers, um, and it, they, even though they've never been to church, or you know, on church as they come, they know that there's something wrong because there's shame involved with it. Why is that? Because sin has corrupted I mean, I can only imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve to experience sex without the shame. You know, being fully naked with, with no, no concerns for, oh, look at this spot that I have on my body or the shame that I have regarding to, oh, you know, maybe I'm a little fat, maybe I'm, I'm too skinny, my, will my spouse like me? No, they had no shame whatsoever because, you know, there was no simple um, concerns on that, on that moment. All right, um, the two discussions here. I, I, put, you, I put there, um, kind of switch the spots for birth control and then because um, of the order of things, wasn't fitting well in my page. I want to find the three views of marriage, actually. There's a chart. Oh, there it is. So in yours is letter B, on my will be letter A. 
So these are three views of marriage. Um, and just a brief review, I'm just going to read the chart. First one is the sacramental. Um, they, they view marriage as a sacrament. It is, um, the definition of the motto is, is marriage is a means of obtaining grace. It's basically the Catholic view of marriage. Um, it, you know how you, you, when you do the Eucharist and, and you become a Christian, they have all these means of grace, the ways that you, you receive grace from God. And you have to, to go through all of those to receive that grace. The, the roots of this model is really on church law or Catholic law. The source of the model is Augustine in the Council of Trent from 1545 and 1563. Um, that started saying, you know, this is a, a, it's a means that God is delivering people, that he's saving people. It is through a sacrament. The weakness with this view is that nothing in nature in marriage that mystically dispenses divine grace. Marriage sanctify us, but it, there's nothing mystical about it that will put us in a better position. Both a single person and a married person are in equal standing before God. They are not more sanctified than the other because of their marital, marital status. It does not cohere with the thrust of the biblical teaching on marriage as a whole. Marriage is a wellspring of new physical life, not a mechanism for attaining spiritual life. It's subordinate to husband, um, husband and wife relationship to the control of the church. Really, they, they don't acknowledge any marriage outside the church because they are the authority to, to impart that grace to to, that will sanctify the person and put them in a different level before God, in a different standing before God. Now we have the contractual view, which has somewhat of a, a, of a, a basis in the scripture because you, you see that language. Um, you know what? The marriage contract that Mary, even as, uh, as um, Eric was mentioning, Mary and Joseph had. So there is some basis, biblical basis for it that has its roots in the civil law. And marriage is a bilateral contract that is voluntarily formed, maintained, and dissolved by two individuals. So that right then and there, you already see the problem, right? It's what the world has. You, before the state and you're married, you have this contract, and it, it is not binding. You can dissolve at any time the same way that you signed it. You can sign the separation. The source of this model is really medieval ecclesiastical courts and the Enlightenment thinking. And a lot of things really bad came out of this because they um, say someone got displeased with a spouse, they could annul the contract even though they have been married and, and act as if they were never married and they don't even be called divorced. They would just say, well, the marriage, wasn't, the marriage was annulled. What is the weaknesses of this view? It's reductionistic. It's not found in the scripture to describe marriage as a whole. Uh, it provides an extremely weak basis for the permanence of marriage, the ability of people not to sin. It opens the door to a variety of marital arrangements prohibited in the scripture. Um, if, if you're just relying on a piece of paper to, to keep that contract, um, you're not going to honor it. The same way that you signed it, you can unsign it. And then finally, the covenantal view of marriage is that a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by and entered before God. Um, the, the pastor really doesn't have, 
any power to unite those lights. That is really being made by the Lord when someone is getting married at church. Um, you don't see that in the scripture, you know, that the ceremony of marriage, they're not imposing or, or imparting some sort of grace. That is really before the Lord that are doing those vows. The, the pastor, the person that is officiating the, the marriage is, is being an instrument in God's hand to, to um, officiate that union. The covenantal language is used in Genesis uh, 2, the, you know, the word of clinging to his wife, is being stuck to his wife as he leaves his father and mother. Malachi 2 talks about that. Um, marriage is not explicitly referred to in the new, um, as a covenant in the New Testament. This is kind of the weakness of the view. But marriage transcends the notion of covenant. It's part of God, God's created order. Um, that was God's design for mankind. And those demonstrable distinction between a contract and a covenant in the Old Testament terminology. Now, the, the only thing that I would advocate still for the covenantal view of marriage is that um, our world has really reduced the contractual view to a piece of paper and to one's one whim to, to, to leave or um, to leave the marital union. All right. Now, Birth control. Should marriage, sex in marriage always produce children? Yes or no? I think there is, um, you know, a, a blessing of living on this side of the, the covenant, living in the new covenant, you know, that um, in the old covenant, not having children was uh, a curse, Really, and childlessness was uh, a horrible thing, not even to be, not to be desired. Or, um, but I, there, on the other hand, I do feel like you know people there are struggling with infertility. My heart goes out for them. There is a, a, a Rachel complex, right? The guy that wrote this article on um, Daniel Doriani talks about the Rachel syndrome. Rachel knew that children were a blessing, but she failed to strengthen knowledge through wisdom. She thought children were the ultimate blessing, that without children, life was not worth living. Um, she fell into the snare of valuing most the thing that she did not have, but only certain may live in an excellent life without children. Even when she did have a child, she wasn't content with that, and she kept, you know, and, and eventually the Lord took her life, you know, give me children while I die. Well, you got children, now you're going to die. Um, so nothing, you know, sex or children, none of those things, they're blessings from God, they're, they're good, they're to be enjoyed, but they're not ultimate. They're not to become gods in our lives. Um, all right, three views. The first view is babies are an option. It's the arranged family a view in American women were bearing on average seven, um, seven children in uh, 5.2 and 186 and 3.6 uh, and through the turning upwards slightly in a few years after. Total fertility rates have gone from 3.45 children per woman to 1.93 children per woman in 1988. We're no longer reproducing ourselves. So Really, there is this decrease uh, on, on reproduction, and 
I'm going to just summarize here because I'm not going to read all this. I have a lot of stuff. Um, it's the pla Planned Parenthood, you know, that basically they, um, their claim is every child is a wanted child. Um, you can't, you can't um, have that natural thing. You always have to have control over this. Um, children is not a command, and I, I will explain. It is not a command to have children, but it is a natural blessing, a natural consequence of being in marriage. And the Lord does want us to, to, to enjoy that blessing. Two is bring on the babies, the unrestricted families, no birth control or quiverful movement. Probably is going to be familiarized with um, uh, Lindsay watched the Duggars. <laughs> uh, what was the name of the show? Yes. So does so that that kind of the the popular view of that they think that birth control um, it's really taking out of the the picture God out of the picture God's sovereignty over that. Um, and then I would just really address the, the last view is children are blessing and a trust, the large but limited family. So this is where I want to focus. We don't have a whole lot of time. But if you want, I can send this article to you uh, by email. Children are a blessing but a trust, a large but limited family. First, the Lord wants children to have, wants his children to have children for reasons already given. Marriage exists for companionship, not reproduction. That is the view of the Catholic Church with, you know, the sacrament thing. Sex is a bad thing, but when you have children, you are sanctified. That's basically the Catholic view of, 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 of marriage. So the concept of marriage permit couples to plan to limit um, the family size. And I think the major argument for that is that when you read Genesis 2, and I think I've explained this before, that is not a biblical command. Um, none as much as it is a blessing. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So this is not a, a, a direct command, but a blessing. God is blessing them. Multiply. Be fruitful. Use that gift that I have given you of sex to multiply. Uh, Genesis 1.28 is similar. The verse, God blessed them and said to them, the blessing um, he gives is fertility. The imperative, be fruitful, means may you be fruitful. The important parallel to this passage demonstrate it. Um, you see it when he uh, says on verse 122 to the animals, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water of the sea. In 122, God is blessing the animals, not giving them a command to be obeyed, for animals cannot consciously obey God. 122 and 28 are identical in their uh, grammatical structures and they are uh, God's blessing on human fertility. Genesis 24, 6 is also a parallel. Um, see what, um, this is the same way that Rebecca's brothers talk to her on chapter 24. How about we open there? Genesis 24, verse 6. Oh, did I get it right? It's 24, 6. 
neighbor himself to me, be aware that you do not take my son back there. No, got the wrong text. Okay. Is that? No, uh, with her. She went down the spring and filled the jar. No, it's when um, it's when her brothers uh, blessed her and said, "Go and be fruitful." Sixty. All right, there you go. Thank you, Eric. May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. So really what um, they are doing there, they are blessing her to be fruitful, um, to have descendants. It's the same structure there. This is not a command. This is a, a, a blessing that the Lord is given. And then um, the one strongest argument is 1 Timothy 5.8, uh, which says if the one does not provide for his own family, he is worse than an unbeliever. So um, we know that the Lord provides, you know, and I, I'm all for having a big family. I remember <laughs> uh, my mom just, just joke a lot. I don't know if you're going to find anyone that want to have 10 kids. Like I'm, I, want, I wanted to have a bunch of kids. Today, I realized, like, that is not that easy. <laughs> uh, it was actually an American missionary that we had in Brazil, and he had, like, a bunch of kids, a couple sets of twins, and um, it, it was just, I just thought it was a, a great thing to have a big family. I grew up in a family of, you know, three siblings. Um, very enjoyable having others around. But, yeah, we do know that there is a limitation. And, um, you know, you think about, young people that are, are not plenty and they, and they get pregnant and they're not able to provide. Put it for an adoption because you have responsibilities of providing physically, not only physically but spiritually, uh, of teaching and training them. Um, so I'm just going to read here his commentary. It says, uh, in 1 Timothy 5.8, limits the notion providing um, it's only on the material realm. The Greek term includes material provision, but it does not exclude a general responsibility to plan for the soundness of the family. Paul's injunction to provide includes comprehensive planning for the nurture of a, of a child. Therefore, parents could, for instance, consider their temperaments in family planning. Some women, for example, thrive on activity. They're happiest when they have a home full and noisy, when their sink is full of dishes. It improves people have been eating. Others love a tidy and well-adorned, uh, ordered home. Noise and mess make them sense, tense. The first woman might flourish with a large brood, and the second might be a good mother of two or three, but a poor mother of five or six. Numerous children bring more blessings, but also more work, more disorder, and the younger children, even though the, young, the older children might be helped. Wise couples lay their plans accordingly. Finally, we might apply Paul's discussion on celibacy on chapter 1 Corinthians 7 to family planning. Children limits one freedom, one's freedom to serve the Lord much, much as marriage does. Remember that Paul advocated for between a single person and a married person of um, having limitations for ministry? With many children, you will have more limitations of how much you can minister. If someone is going to a missionary to a, as a missionaries to a foreign country that is has a lot of persecution, 
you know that you will be putting your children at risk there. So being uh, aware of, of those limitations will help to plan. Um, talks about family, uh, pastor's family here, that sometimes it, it, it takes away from um, spending time with the family. This does not mean that Christians have to choose between a large family and service to the church or the world. One can do both. Nor does it mean that parents of young children cannot ask their families to sacrifice for the sake of ministry. We see that, unfortunately, happens. Too many people hide behind the duty to the family as they refuse the valid Christian service. Yet, if laziness threatens one side, infidelity to family commitments looms on the other. So it's having a balanced view. Um, all right. I will stop here on this discussion, and I just want to bring all the way to the end there. It's the last page. That's so hard to find. There you go. Issues related to sexual intimacy. Um, I know that I ran a little quick on that one, but I can tell you uh, later. Dylan? Yeah, I think the major thing what Dylan's trying to bring out here is knowing the motivations. Um, I do remember having this discussion in seminary with other guys where, why is that they don't want to have kids? You know, um, I think we should be careful not to go on the other end and say, like, this is a command and kind of oppress people. Or well, what if they're, they can't have kids? What if they're infertile? Like, we, wanna, we don't want to impose that on others. Um, but at the same time, why is that they don't want to have kids? Oh, I just want a comfortable life. We want to travel. We want to do this. We want to do that. And really, our, well, you know, that is God's natural <laughs> You know, it is a blessing to you. It is a blessing to your family. As, as Dylan is saying, it is a way of you growing and sanctifying and showing selflessness, right? Because you're being other-centered. Um, so asking the motivations uh, is very helpful. Um, you know, I, I think about, I had once heard, you know, the, the saying, well, we, we want to serve more in ministry, and, and then I ask, what is that you're going to be doing in ministry? That you can't have kids to do that ministry. <laughs> um, and, and really, you wouldn't have a concrete answer for that. Um, so, sorry, I'm, we're getting a little further here, but I just want to make these observations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, it is. It is. I just want to conclude there that it is, sex is a blessing from God to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. It should be treated as an act of worship, not of worship of self. It's a gift within, to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage and should be applied both to singles as patient perseverance in purity and marriage, the fulfillment of um, fulfilled pure enjoyment. And pure, by pure, I mean not defiled by um, sexual sin. All right? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for um, your word that is um, living and active uh, and sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us that you have blessed us with
um, this privilege uh, for those that are married, uh, able to enjoy it. And for those that are single, they're also able to um, honor you in, with their purity and to honor their future spouse if that's your will for them. In any case, Lord, there is fulfillment in Christ, and we are thankful that he gave everything so that we have everything in him. We are thankful and ask your blessing for the rest of our time here. In Jesus' name, amen.